Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. Now, we have a little bit of a shortened show today, but it's on a really, really important topic. So instead of my endlessly entertaining opening that I usually do, we're going to cut right to the chase. But I can't forget our housekeeping. First, our email address, thepowerhour@heritage.org. That's thepowerhour@heritage.org. Give us feedback. Or just reach out and say, hi, I need friends. So reach out to me. I promise you, I will get back to you. And you help me know if you like what we're doing, subjects to to address, people to reach out to. So email me. Now on where can you find us? You obviously know something because you're here now. But I want to make it easier for you to find us. You can find us on Spotify, on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Just type in. Um, Jack Spencer at Power Hour, or we're found on the Heard It Heritage feed, or however you want to do it, or you can just Google it. If you type in Jack Spencer the Power Hour or Heard It Heritage Power Hour, you will get us. And then once you find us, please hit subscribe. That way you don't have to go through that hassle. It'll just come into your inbox or your wherever your podcasts go every week, and you don't have to think about it. You can just listen to us. So make sure you hit subscribe. Now, as we've tried to do in the past, We like to bring you news-relevant episodes when the moment calls for it. Sometimes we even go energy-adjacent. We've talked about, God knows what, we've talked about uh, uh, cryptocurrency. We've talked about budget issues. But sometimes, just sometimes, the hot issues align perfectly with a strong energy component. And there is no issue where that is more the case than what's going on right now in the Middle East. With nearly as much oil going through the Straits of Hormuz as America consumes each day, conflict in the region very much impacts every American in our energy use. If only, if only there was someone out there who is equally steeped in national security and energy issues. And if that person would have been at the center of U.S. policy towards the region in recent years, that would be awesome. If only there was someone, anyone, who has advised the President of the United States, who has advised the Secretary of Defense, who has advised the Secretary of Energy, who has been on Capitol Hill, all the time, most of the time, we'll find out, with a focus on Middle Eastern energy policy, if only that person was around. You got it. You got it. I actually found that one person. Our guest today, and we'll go into more details about this, I'm sure, But among a million other positions, during the Trump administration was a deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor for the Middle East and North Africa, and advised the secretary of energy on energy security issues and acted as his personal representative in the Middle East and North Africa. If it's happened in the Middle East in recent years, it had to do with energy. Our guest today has been part of it. I promise you that. It is my pleasure to welcome 
to the power hour, in addition to everything else I just mentioned, the current vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, Victoria Coates. Victoria, welcome to the Power Hour. Thank you, Jack. It is great to have you here and to talk about this really important subject. Now, we don't have a ton of time, but I like for our audience to get a chance to get to know our, our guests just a little bit. So can you tell us, well, f- first of all, you've done so much. Did I miss anything in that that that, that I should mention? Well, I'm very old, so that's the, I've had a lot of time to do things. But I think you, you do need to start with the Ph.D. in Italian Renaissance art history. All things flow from that. Uh, and a bach- bachelor's degree and a master's a degree. degree. Yes, all, all art history. All in art history. So if you want to do another pod about oil and we want to talk about oil paintings, we can okay. do that. Okay, we can uh, do that. But I, yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's been an amazing ride over the last uh, sixteen, seventeen years since Don Rumsfeld plucked me out of obscurity in academia. Thank heavens, uh, given what we've seen recently, and put me to work on his book, and then working for Senator Cruz, and as you said, being in the administration, uh, had a lot of of very interesting experiences and met a lot of interesting people, many of whom are deeply interested in energy issues. I'll tell you one part of your career that I didn't mention, nor did you, but we're going to mention it right now because it's a commonality between us, which I didn't realize. So I was just reading, sort of preparing for this. You worked at the Center for Security Policy. I did. I was at uh, CSP for about 10 months right after the end of the administration. Do you know who else worked at the Center for Security Policy and has two thumbs? Did Did you, Jack? This guy. For your <laughs> for the audience, I'm pointing at myself with my thumbs. I did. That was my Frank Gaffney gave me my very first job in Washington, D.C., yeah, we've got a couple of alum. We have yeah. Tim Kennedy. We've got a bunch of folk. Frank, um, this is the second time in two or three weeks that mm-hmm. he has come up. Um, I had Dave Walsh on a few <laughs> weeks ago, and he works with Frank uh, in the Center for Security Policy. I worked for him a long time ago, like in 1994 or six. <laughs> I'm not sure. One of those. And Even my number. My first job for him, and we're going to get to the important stuff, I promise. Um, I interned for him, and then I'm such a redneck hillbilly country bumpkin. I didn't, I didn't know what an like. I had no idea of what working in an office was or what positions were. I did the internship, and it went really well. And um, they had a an off a, a opening as a office manager a, slash executive assistant. And I had no idea what that was. I just knew that I wanted to go work in D.C. And if and so I applied for it. And um, for whatever reason, they hired me. And uh, working for Frank was awesome. Being Frank's executive assistant was a challenge. I can see how, how that, that could be a difficult one to nail down. Oh, man. But then I got to the Heritage Foundation, and I've been here pretty much ever since. The rest is history. And the rest is history, as they say. Now, before we move on to the issue, which we're going to do, You've had so much interesting experience. Could you give us an anecdote or two about your time in government that that is memorable or interesting or funny or not funny? Just just tell us something. No, I think uh, certainly, you know, working for Senator Cruz from the beginning of his time in office was was deeply instructive uh, just because he's broken so much China in the Senate. And there are a lot of people who go to the Senate to join a club, and he didn't. And certainly the most memorable thing from the first year was, was filibuster and, and 
part of our job was to go down to the Senate floor to, to sort of give him something different to look at as the hours went on. And I remember sitting down there and, and Senator Lee and Senator Cruz were basically reading the Constitution to each other or reciting it to each other. And I was sitting there looking at them thinking, this is, you know, this could be happening on any given Tuesday, except it would be four in the afternoon, not four in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, just watching him stand up for what he believed was right on Obamacare and not listening to the club uh, and taking the arrows for it, but then also getting the credit for it. And that's what launched his uh, 2016 presidential bid. So that that was fascinating. I guess one other thing is the longevity of relationships, If you, and a little bit what you were just talking about with Frank. But you know, if you if you form good relationships with good people, they they stick with you over time. And that's an important thing to maintain in D.C. And I would put Governor Perry in that catalog category rather, too, working for him on his his first presidential in 2011 and 12. But then he came back into my life when he joined the administration as secretary of energy. And that's how I got over to the energy department at the end of last year of the administration. So so it's an interesting town. Uh, if you're open to your career taking lots of different twists and turns, you can have extraordinary experiences. But the key thing is to get connected to those good people. Great advice. Great advice. Um, let's get into the issue. Let's just start from the top. What is going on in the Middle East right now? Give us sort of the overview. Uh, when we left office in, in January of, of 21, we actually unusually left the Middle East in pretty good shape. We had inked the Abraham Accord, Accords the, during the previous six months, the agree, first peace agreements between Israel and and Muslim-majority na- neighbors, including Bahrain and UAE and Morocco, all very important U.S. allies, and uh, had also been on a very concerted campaign to starve Iran of resources. So that the strategy behind that uh, was that that if you give them money, and we knew this from the original nuclear deal, when they had significant sanctions relief, uh, they spent all of that money on military projects. It was literally dollar for dollar. And when we came in, we had just an arc of terrorism from Lebanon uh, through Syria and Iraq and down into Yemen surrounding Iran as Iran was basically trying to create this corridor to to the Mediterranean. And when President Trump uh, ordered a review of the original deal and it could not be improved, and we did try. He didn't rip it to shreds on day one. Uh, Brian Hook, his special envoy, was deployed to Europe to see if we could get a better deal. And nobody would agree to any concessions to the United States. They only wanted to make more concessions to Iran. So we said this this deal just is not worth the United States complying with it and got out of the deal and imposed the most the strongest unilateral sanctions uh, on Iran that we had done in in U.S. history and you know really got their economy in a world of hurt got them down to about three four hundred thousand barrels of oil a day that they were cheating on uh, and got them down to about I believe four four five billion in foreign currency reserves which is the verge of default essentially. And unfortunately, so we had a strengthened Israel, we had better alliances, and we had a weakened Iran. And the Biden administration reversed all of those policies. They uh, stopped enforcing the sanctions about against Iran, and Iran is now at about 3 million barrels a day, uh, at least a million, if not more, to communist China. 
the Biden administration is depending on that product remaining on market to keep prices down. So they're not taking any uh, actions to disrupt it. We have have them around, I believe, 70 billion in foreign currency reserves. So they've got money in the bank. And what have they done with these resources? They have spent them on a spectacular Hamas terrorist attack out of Gaza, Hamas being another proxy uh, military group for the Iranians uh, on on southern Israel. And on October 7th, we saw just a a shockingly savage uh, terrorist attack on civilians, the violence of which was, was so horrific that I think we as the civilized world still have not come truly to terms with the depraved inhumanity of the attackers, what they were willing to do, uh, not just attack Israeli military uh, installations and soldiers, but you know, women, children, elderly, Holocaust survivors. They didn't care. They wanted to kill as many Jews as they could and then take as many hostages as they could back to Gaza to prolong the agony, which is what we're still living through today. So this was a shocking event. It was the biggest Jewish loss of life in a single day since the Holocaust. It was the biggest attack on Israel since 1973. Also a very significant terrorist attack on the United States. We've lost at least 33 citizens uh, who were killed and 10 are also still missing, so are either dead or captive. So so this is a seminal event in the Middle East, disrupting the relative peace of the Trump administration and throwing the region really into chaos, which does have, as I know you'll, you'll be asking me next, uh, very significant ramifications for energy markets. That's what I was just going to ask. <laughs> well, I don't want to give you uh, – I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to ask you something else. Okay. I'll eventually ask that. Um, when it comes to Iran, pro- I think the answer is probably yes to that. But Hamas, just whenever, whenever those interests, is that what you call them? Countries, terrorist groups, that group, whatever we want to call them. When they are thinking about how they're going to engage in their activities, their terrorist and other activities, are they thinking about energy as part of that? Like what are the implications in energy markets, like is that part of their calculation? Yes, it's definitely changed over time, but it is. First of all, it's their lifeblood. It's it's what provides them with financing uh, to carry out these attacks. So there's that. And Iran, like Russia, routinely uses its energy resources as a tool of blackmail. And so historically, when the United States was uh, a much more energy vulnerable consuming nation, they would either threaten to or, or close the Strait of Hormuz, that very narrow neck at the at the base of the Gulf where all of that energy, as you described, has to go through every day to get onto, onto global markets. So and, – and historically also, they could use that as a bludgeon against Israel as well because uh, up until recently, Israel was also an intensely energy vulnerable nation before they made – their natural gas discoveries in the eastern Mediterranean, which have turned them into an energy exporter, which is sort of miraculous in a bi- biblical sense. But but that has very much been Iran's MO. And I th- would say now in 2023, they know that domestic energy prices are a problem for the United States. They know that the Biden administration is dependent, as I said, on those 3 million barrels remaining on the market because the kind of coordination that we did with the Saudis 
and and the Emirates during the period when the president President Trump rather withdrew from the, from the nuclear deal and took the exceptions to Iranian exports as close to zero as we could get them. Uh, we worked with them to inc- put a climate into place so that United States energy production rose. The Saudis have a cartel, so they just turned the tap. Their production rose, and we really didn't have a blip on markets. But if you did that, if you took the Iran barrels off the market tomorrow without that commensurate action, you would have a problem. Do you think that um, – I mean the energy policies is, between Biden and Trump could not be more different. And given that under President Trump, establishing American energy dominance, producing energy, was a priority and a lot of his energy policy was around freeing up federal lands, making it easier to produce and develop uh, energy resources, and doing what we here at Heritage have argued, I've argued for years, that the best way to undermine any country or organization's ability to use energy as a weapon is to flood the world with molecules and electrons. Um, did, did, did energy policy specifically, do you think, empower Iran and Hamas to uh, to be able to go, to go forward with something like this? Absolutely. Uh, there's no way they can do it. You know, if they were in the same straits they were in in, in the beginning of 2021, uh, and I know for a fact that a, a, a third country uh, said to the Biden administration, if you want to go into additional negotiations with the Iranians, keep these sanctions on because that will give you leverage and you can drive a really hard deal. And instead of doing that, they did the reverse. Uh, and I mean, not having learned the lessons of the Biden or of the Obama administration, rather, and so repeating the mistake of thinking that if you engaged Iran economically or allowed them to engage with the world, that they would become a more reasonable actor. And what October seventh proves beyond any shadow of a doubt, if any were lingering from the Obama experience, is that's simply not true. And A lot of people talk about the $6 billion in ransom for the five American hostages uh, that was paid in in August uh, to to Iran. I don't think that financed this attack. That's for the next attack. I think the tens of billions of dollars in oil revenue that they've raked in over the last 28 months uh, is what paid for this. And we've heard from uh, Hamas sources themselves that they started planning this two years ago. So that is directly related to the oil revenues that the Biden administration voluntarily permitted to flow into Iran. Can you talk a little bit about how all how there's all this chaos, there 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 seems to be a lot of chaos in the world, and a lot of it revolves around energy, uh, or a lot of it has energy implications, I should say. Whether it's Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. I mean, those are the obvious. Russia, Ukraine, what's going on in the Middle East? Both both have big energy pieces to it. Can you talk about how, as policymakers are conducting policy and engaging, like how do you think about energy and how how does how does that impact policy? What sort of what are the sort of policy decisions that are making as as you engage in the art of foreign policy? And then I'd like to talk about. Let's, let's, let's talk about that, then I'll get to the next thing. Well, in the Davis Institute, Jack, we like to talk about national security policy rather than foreign policy because I want to talk about issues that impact heritage members 
uh, the American people uh, that 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 these issues do come home for to them, and energy is 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 a key. And certainly, wars have been fought over energy in the past. It played a decisive role in World War II, for example. But as you know better than I, you know modern energy needs are exploding. You know what we needed a hundred years ago, and what we need to function in a, in the 2023 timeframe are just radically different. It's everything from flipping a light switch to powering your iPhone to getting in a car to getting in a plane uh, to operating GPS. I mean, and now we're going into an even more energy intensive world with you know data processing centers, AI, cryptocurrencies that just consume energy at an extraordinary rate and a growing population that expects to have uh, access to reliable, reasonably priced energy. And so what has always been a, a very desirable commodity is going to become ever, ever more crucial. And so as you approach something like Ukraine, you know, which really stemmed out of the supplies of Russian natural gas to Western Europe, that uh, the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines were installed and accepted by primarily the Germans, but others, as well on the grounds, and they, they, they apparently have said this to successive presidents from Bush to Trump, that, that Putin needed to sell them energy more than they needed to buy it. And in the end, Putin decided that wasn't true. Contributing to that was the uh, debacle of the, the fall of Afghanistan on Biden's watch, the perception that American leadership was weak and feckless. And, you know, President Biden actually going up to the Congress in January of, of 22 and lobbying against sanctions on Nord Stream 2. So essentially functioning as uh, Putin's lobbyist. Uh, in, in the United States Congress because he wanted, again, these that Russian supply on the market so he wouldn't have to match it with U.S. supply. And that turned out to be a colossal disaster uh, in terms of, of what happened in Europe. Uh, the, it was actually good uh, to some extent to U.S. natural gas producers because they they got exports to Europe that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But we've had steadily rising energy prices because supplies are constricted, uh, especially, you know, when you're taking taking Russian supplies out of out of Europe. And, you know, it's been very frustrating as a native Pennsylvanian uh, who thinks a lot about these issues because had the great good fortune of being out in Oil City a couple of weeks ago for an energy dialogue and talking to some of our producers out in the west of the state, we could quadruple Pennsylvania uh, natural gas production over the course of probably two years. It wouldn't be instantaneous. Some of it would be instantaneous. But uh, and Pennsylvania is already the number two state in natural gas production. So so this is just has enormous potential to expand in the United States. And oh, by the way, bring emissions down as it has been doing here at home, because it's a cleaner fuel. And so so this is this sort of thing, you know, that that should inform you know, future conflicts. We should be going into, if we are going into a conflict in the Middle East from a position of tremendous strength as the United States, we shouldn't have to fear a disruption in supplies out of the Gulf because we know we would know that we could make up for that here at home, but we're not. And so so that's how, you know, you, you can take what had been a strength for the U.S. and make it a vulnerability to a country like Iran. I have to, at this point, do my obligatory shout out to Cole because inevitably, um, people talk about the better emissions profile of certain uh, 
uh, fuel types. And I would always like to point out to folks that um, carbon emission, the carbon emissions of natural gas might be less, but the, uh, the actual pollutants that make us not feel good, uh, coal does a really good job of keeping those at very low levels as air cleanliness in this United States has declined for decades, even while we burn coal. And coal gives us lots of energy security, too. hundred percent. I was talking to a good friend from West Virginia about exactly this topic yesterday. And the other thing is, is that American coal and natural gas are both cleaner burning than yeah. most of the supplies in the rest of the world. So our, ours is not only more efficient, but it's also cleaner for the environment. And that's why we have enjoyed a steadily increasing quality of, of air and water. Right. Now, um, back to the issue at hand, sort of. We talked about... We talked about the, the, what's going on in the Middle East and how Russia and that has impacted. Now comes the future, a future-looking question. Given all of this, is the situation in with China and Taiwan, it, does it make something more likely bad to happen there? It's, it's a deep concern. And as you look at the Biden administration who came in with such vaunted promises of the, you know, the adults being back in the room, oh, that terrible cowboy Trump national security policy was the thing in the rearview mirror. Well, they started out with a bang in Afghanistan in 2021. Then we had another bang in Ukraine in 2022, and now another seismic uh, explosion in Israel in 2023. And it, you have to ask what's coming in 24. And, you know, you could have, I mean, it could come out of somewhere completely, uh, completely different, but certainly smart money would be on Taiwan that Xi would look at next year and say, you know, we're never going to have a better opportunity. We now have the United States tied up on both Ukraine and whatever is going to transpire in the Middle East. And so, you know, it's one reason why as Heritage, we had been urging some restraint in the U.S. participation in Ukraine, not because we approve of Putin or we don't want the Ukrainians to win, but because Ukraine has wealthy neighbors who should be doing a great deal more to support what is a European war. Israel doesn't have that luxury. Wealthy neighbors in the region are not likely to come to their defense. If it's not the United States, it's certainly not going to be the Europeans either. So you can wind up in a situation where, where President Biden, through his policy on Ukraine, has obligated us to be the single largest donor on that effort. We will have to be the single larger, largest partner for Israel. And even though we do have good partners in Asia who have awakened to the Chinese threat, we're going to have to play a major role there as well. And so, you know, if I were Xi and I were committed to retaking Taiwan because he faces some pretty bad problems domestically himself, needs something to distract from that, next year is his greatest window of opportunity. Coming back to the Middle East. And I'd like to end on a more of a positive note, if we can. Um, I, or, I, or I struggle in that department. The potential for positive <laughs> note. What, what can we do as a nation to get ourselves out of this? It just feels like we're in sort of this downward, not, I don't want to say America's in a downward spiral, but, but like something's off. Like how, how do we move forward? It's, it's a difficult period, make no mistake about it. And I think a lot about the uh, late 1970s when we were coming off you know, the assassinations of the 60s, the political turmoil of Watergate, the fall of Saigon, and then into a Carter administration when once again it felt like America had a kick-me sign on our backs, uh, very little 
success on the international stage, and it was capped off by the revolution in Iran and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Things seemed very, very dark, and there are obviously parallels there. But the hopeful thing is that, you know, with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, you know, literally it became morning in America again. And when you had clear, decisive American leadership, uh, which, you know, is so sorely lacking now, but came roaring back to Washington in January of 1981, you know, it didn't take all that long for him to right the ship and then put the uh, put the policies in place that would ultimately win the Cold War. So I think the strengths of the United States remain unparalleled, both in energy and then in a host of other fields. I think China does have a lot of very pressing economic and demographic pro- problems. And, oh, they're the world's largest energy importer, and they always will be. They can't solve that, a huge vulnerability for them. So if we can get leadership, hopefully in Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, but if not from the United States Congress that can you know, strongly support conservative policies, I have no doubt that we can have the same kind of reversal we saw in 1981. I agree with that, by the way. That is exactly where my optimism comes from. And so uh, that's what we have to look forward to. And we'll keep plugging away, making sure that new administrations have good policies to turn all this stuff around. Victoria, thank you for being here today. I want to thank everyone who took some time out of your busy day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out and email us at that email address, thepowerhouratheritage.org. Now, before we end, Victoria, is there anything that we missed? No, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Thank you very much for having me on and for being a great colleague. Where? Well, thank you for being a great colleague. Um, where can people find you? Like, do you do you do any social media or do you have anything that you want to promote or or that kind of thing? I'm a little too active on Twitter uh, at Victoria Coates. Maybe not so much today because of the devastating uh, Phillies loss uh, recently. So uh, but but in general, if you want a nice mix of national security policy and uh, energy policy and Philadelphia sports, I'm your girl. And then I'm also have a, a homepage on heritage.org and you can go on and just search me and you find all my stuff. So there you go, folks. Check out Victoria on her social media and on the internet. Remember to email us at thepowerhouratheritage.org. Thank you once again, Victoria, for being a guest. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.